All right, good morning, my friends. Let's uh, flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll continue our journey here through the letter. Last week, we finished up through uh, verse 11, or through 10, I should say. And uh, we're going to read a little bit of that this morning as we jump into uh, our text, which will be 11 through 15, just so we can keep the context going and understand what we're reading. Remember, Paul is writing to Corinth here, and uh, this is kind of a, uh, well, it's at least a third letter. We know that, right, because he said that he wrote to them a second time in 1 Corinthians. And so he's writing to them, and he's encouraging them in different ways, still addressing a few things that haven't seemed to uh, been worked out. And then um, he's also encouraging them in new ways. And so we're going to just get started, jump into it. We're going to read from chapter 5 and verse 6, and we'll start there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body... We are away from the Lord, for we live by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what, is the, what it is to fear the Lord, We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are outright, excuse me, if we are in our mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died uh, for them and was raised again. Amen. So last week we finished off uh, this little portion here, but I I want to read it again because this all plays into it, right? In verse 11 it says, since then. So because of that, uh, it's already been stated, he's going to add to it. So what we have is this idea that we are in mortal bodies, they are corrupted and they're decaying, and there's a new body waiting for us, right? We covered that in great detail last week. He goes on to say there, uh, verse 7, for we live by faith and not by sight. In other words, in this life, in this body that we know will be put away, that we live not based on everything that we see, right? Uh, we're not, we don't want to be moved by the tides of this world or what we observe in this world, uh, in a sense, yes, we live in the world, but our, our kingdom, our calling is of heaven, right? So ultimately, we're first citizens there. So we, when we live, we don't live by just why we, what we see we, or, or even uh, to an extent what we experience in these bodies. We live by faith. Faith in what? Faith in who God is, right? That he's our savior, that he's the Lord, that he's got purpose, that he's uh, able, that you know, we, we looked at uh, Romans chapter 8, that he's working all things together for those that love him. And are called according to his purpose, and also that the Holy Spirit's making intercession for us, right? That, that nature is groaning, that, that God is working and doing all these incredible things in and around us. And so, therefore, we don't have to fear. Uh, we don't have to, 
you know, live by some sort of concern or terror. Uh, we can just live knowing that whatever occurs in this life around us, that God is able to use it for good, and we can be part of building his kingdom in that. In verse 9, he, he begins a conclusion where he says, So, so because of this reality that, is, uh, uh, that we're in temporal bodies and we prefer to be with the Lord, but right now we're in these temporal bodies, so because of that we make it our goal to please him. Whether we are at home or in the body, uh, or uh, at home in the body or away from it, and, and it's a challenging idea because what would we say? Uh, what would we say is our main goal? What What would you say if, if someone asked you and said, "What is the main goal of your life?" And I'm not trying to nitpick or or, or condemn or be weird about it, but but what, what is your main goal? And I think a lot of us just out of reaction might say, or I can't, I don't know what you would say. But we might say to ourselves, like, my main goal is to make sure I have a nice retirement. Or my main goal is to make sure that my kids get the, uh, the best education they can. And all those things are fine. Those are good things, right? But at the end of the day, you know, Jesus taught us. He said that we seek first the kingdom of heaven, right? And then all these other things are added to us. That at the end of the day, our main goal ought to be what pleases you today. And, and here's the thing. That can be overwhelming, right? Because there could be a million possibilities of what might, we might think or consider could please God in that one day. And we'll address that because uh, it's actually pretty simple how God calls us to walk with him. But in this case, he says that that's our goal. It's to please him. Whether I'm in this body right now on earth or whether I'm with him, my goal is to be pleasing to him. Not in a weird way, but in the sense of like a, a child, a healthy child, you know, seeks to please their parent. So it says there in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So he goes from pleasing to this idea of the judgment seat of Christ, the, the bema seat. Remember that? The bema seat of Christ. It's the same word that they use in the Greek for the podium that people would stand on for the Olympics, right? So you have the, uh, the first, second, third place, and they got the laurel crowns that they would get and so forth. So he's, that's the word that's used there, the bema seat judgment of Christ. It's different from the great, great white throne judgment, right? In the great white throne judgment of Revelation, the books are open, the sea gives up its dead, the earth gives up its dead, and then everybody's judged by what? Is their name written in the book of life, right? That's not what we read here. This is a judgment that is before Christ. It's called the Bema Seat Judgment, not a great white throne. And it is for Christians where we give an account for our lives. And remember last week we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul uh, elaborates further on that. And he says that each person will essentially have work that they've done. And so some people's work will be, well, it's probably a mix for most, but wood, hay, stubble, which is, those are all temporary um, elements in a sense. They're, they're, they're fragile. They burn, right? They're not worth much. They're, they're common. And then he says, there's also works that we can do that are gold, silver, and precious stones. Now, obviously, those are to an extent temporary also on the earth, but those on the earth are enduring things and things of value, right? They're rare, they're enduring, and they're things of value. And he says, when we stand before Christ, that he'll judge us, that, he'll, it'll, it, that he, he will look at us, and we'll give an account for our life. And so those things which we developed in our life that were wood, hay, stubble, temporary, common worthlessness. Does that make sense? So and uh, that, that, that they'll be lost, right? That those things will be burnt away. But things that were of value that were brought about in our life by decisions that we made, he says those things will remain. And, but the person who has their stuff burnt up, he says, he himself shall be saved as though by fire. So the issue that we're looking at here is not salvation. It is essentially 
what of the soul, so if we're predestined, right, Romans chapter 8, if we're destined to be conformed to the image of his son, if believers have that destiny, then really what it becomes is how much in this life will we allow God to work in our hearts to be conformed into this image? So think of it this way. And the whole context here of this judgment is mortality versus life, right? He says this mortal must put on life, right? Not just immortality, but life. So that when it comes down to it, if I cultivate, let's say I'm just a grumpy person, a mean person, right? But I, I'm, I'm a sanctified mean person, and I blame it on, like, you know, hypoglycemia or something, right? And so I go through my life, and I'm just rude to people, specifically my children, right? We, we seem to offend the people closest to us the most, right? I don't know why that is. It's a very interesting dynamic, but we feel, we can feel oftentimes very at peace with being rude to people around us, or the internet. That's actually a prime place, too, like what we post on Facebook and whatnot. So if I do that my whole life, right, that will have effect. It'll have effect for generations, won't it? Because if my two daughters see me always being rude and accusatory and condemning and unkind to my wife, they will perceive that that's how men should act, right? Because their mom stayed with a dude that was that way, so that's okay, Right? And they will grow up with, with resentment probably towards men. They'll grow up with resentment towards me. They'll probably want to leave the house right, as soon as they can. Just a lot of bad right, will come of that. So when I stand before the Lord, if that's my life, I have made part of my soul to be very selfish. Right? I've served myself. I've said what I want. I went where I want. I did what I want. And it had nothing to do with this kingdom. So when I stand before the Lord, that can't go into heaven, Right? There's not going to be someone in heaven who's like, well, you know, I guess this is nice. I think my entry should have been a little bit more glorified. I think I should have got a little more applause. That won't happen, right? So that has to be removed from me, as by fire. So in ultimately, at the judgment seat of Christ, those things that I've cultivated that are temporal, that are mortal, that mortality will be, if you will, burnt or ripped away from my eternal soul. And so I'll enter as by fire. So there'll be parts of my life, if I was generous or if I was whatever it might be, those things will be in heaven. And I will be able to speak of God's faithfulness and his glory and his kindness in my life, right? Gold, jewels, right? And silver. But if I cultivate that which is common and, and burnable, it goes away. So Paul's, that's, that's what he's referencing here. That there's this a judgment that will take place and that we'll receive what is due us. This is not receiving or losing salvation. This is not, you didn't do enough good works, so to hell with you. That was all accomplished in Jesus, right? What happened at the cross, where Jesus paid, he paid it all. As the hymn says, right? Not the hymns or doctrine or the scripture, but Jesus paid it all. So it's an important idea, uh, you know, idea that we carry through this whole chapter. And we'll look more at that because we're going we're gonna to get into this idea of the fear of the Lord. So he says, we're going to receive this. Then his response, and what we're jumping into today in verse 11, he says, since then, what's the then? Since we'll, we judge and since uh, we're, we're getting this new body, since then we have a ministry in the body that we're in, since you know, all of chapter 4 and chapter 3, that the fact that there's, there's glory to be had, that God's working, you know, uh, since then. So because of all this goodness that's going on, he says, we know what it is, we know uh, what is the, to fear the Lord. So this word fear is interesting because it's the word phobos. In this case, it's, it's phobon because of the tense. But so phobos, you might have heard that, right? The Greek god phobos and whatever. 
Phobos can be translated terror. And if you have a King James, that's what your Bible says, right? We, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord. So it can be translated terror. It can be translated, and it is translated fear, and it's translated reverence. And you may have heard before in different Bible teachings, well, this isn't terror, this is reverence, and this, is, this isn't reverence, this is terror, and, and these type of things. And the way that the translators figure out how they want to translate it is they try to get the idea from the passage. So they're looking at the passage, they're looking at the context, and they're saying, okay, how do we translate phobon here? Is it, is it terror or is it not? So depending on what your Christian history is will kind of depend on how you look at God and how you interpret him in your life and his working in these different things. So what I want to talk about first is, is how do we know that fear is the right translation and not terror? Because fear and terror are two different things, right? Terror is the idea that you're paralyzed with fear, that you can't move with fear, right? If you, if you say that you're terrorized, the idea is, most, is it brings in anxiety, right? It brings in uh, the, the concern of, of destruction of self, right? Loss, all these things. That's what terror is. Reverence is completely different from that, right? If you have a, a father and you're in terror of your father, something is wrong, right? Like that's not a healthy relationship. But if you have a father and you reverence him, you think, you know what? This person's taking care of me. He hands his paycheck to his wife. She, you know, she buys food with it. I get shelter every night. I should maybe listen to what he has to say. That's different, isn't it? One is a healthy idea and one is an unhealthy idea, right? So how do we know in this case how what you and I experience? Because if my, if my Christian history is one of legalism, like mine is, if it's one of do or die, right, you better do stuff or God's going to be mad at you, then we would want to translate it and say that knowing the terror of the Lord, right? But if my Christian history and my understanding of the Bible comes from the idea that God is love, right, and that, and that he is caring for human beings and he wants human beings, then that's going to change from terror to reverence, Right? So when, when we're, there's a few things that we're, I'm going to talk about, and then we'll look at some scriptures. Number one is, every relationship between Jesus and his people is one of intimacy, right? Where he is called uh, the, essentially, we're called the bride of Christ, and he's the husband, right? Is that, if, if you're terrified of your husband, is that a healthy relationship? Is that what you get if you read the scripture and you, and you, talk, about, you talk about the bride of Christ? Do you go, well, that, okay, that, does that ring in your mind to be one of terror? Does it ring in your mind to be one of destruction and, and you better or else or something like that? No, it doesn't. What does it ring in your mind when you think of a marital, a healthy marital relationship? Companionship, right? Care, respect, right? That's what you experience in a healthy marital relationship. Now, don't worry. I know if you're a closet legalist like me, right now you're going, oh, oh, but he's the Lord. He's the Lord. Yes, he's the Lord. He's the Lord of glory, right? He's the Lord of hosts. When he returns, it says that his, out of his mouth comes a smiting sword that smites the nations. His eyes are eyes of fire that judge the nations. When he comes back, it says his garment is dipped in blood from treading out the winepress of war. Do you see the imagery there? stomping out rebellious people. It says that written on his thigh is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. A hundred percent. We are not denying that Jesus because that's who he is. 
But for his people's sake and for this idea that we know what it is to fear the Lord, what does that mean for us? So you, first and foremost, you have, you have the bride of Christ, right? After that, you have what? As a father pitieth his son, so the Lord pitieth those that fear him. Right? So what is pity? Pity is being concerned about something, a condition that someone is in. Right? That you, you look at that and you go, that is too bad. I wish it wasn't that way. So you have a, the father-son idea. Which again, is that terror or is that reverence? It's not terror, it's reverence. You know, so all these different ways that you see, uh, for example, in John 15, where, where Jesus says, he says, I don't call you slaves, I call you friends. Because a, a, a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. But I'm telling you everything that I'm doing, right? So again, Jesus self describes himself to his followers, you're my friends. We're told that we're co-heirs with Christ. Right? Because Christ died and rose again from the dead, Romans 6 and Galatians both tell us that we died with Christ by faith, right? that we died with him, and that now because he rose from the dead and through faith, we live that same life that he has. Right? And so because of that, since he is the firstborn among creation, since he's the heir of God, he inherits heaven and we get to inherit it with him. Right? So, again, we're not trying to minimize the Lord of glory, right? And the Psalms that lift up your gates of brass for the Lord of glory is coming in. We're not minimizing the Lord of glory. We're saying this is how the Lord of glory has sovereignly decided that he would act in love towards his people, right? So, we get comfort and we, we celebrate what God is doing in our lives, not out of terror, but because he loves us. Right? He cares about us. He's got great things for us. So in this judgment, we're going to, and we'll read some pretty cool verses here in a minute. In this judgment, we approach it with reverence because we want to please God. Right? Just like in a, in a healthy marriage, you want to please your spouse, spouse right? You want to, to help your spouse, to, to bless your spouse, to, to make sure they're taken care of and emotionally and physically and all these things, right? That's, that's a healthy relationship. And so also, essentially, God is working in our hearts. We want to honor and obey him and be near him, not out of law, right? Romans said, Romans 7 tells us very clearly, we've died to the law, right? The law no longer applies to the believer. It no longer imputes sin to the believer because we died to the law. That's the whole point of Romans 7 and 8. So if sin imputation, imputation means deposit, right? To deposit into an account. If sin imputation is no longer a thing for the believer, we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about a reverent relationship of love, right? Now, if you, if you don't mind, we won't turn there, uh, but in 1 Thessalonians 5, it's, it's another good one. It says that he has not destined us. Well, we'll turn there. Why not? Right? You, they need time to make the food. So in 1 Thessalonians... Chapter 5, forgive me, we're jumping into the middle of a thought here. In 1 Thessalonians 5, the Thessalonians always trick me. They're before the Timothys, if you're having trouble, because I always look after and am bereft. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8, he says, But since we belong to the day, that he's talking about being children of the day versus children of the night, children of light. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, 
but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there again, it's just a nice, um, well, it's more than just nice, but it's a, a very complimentary point that Paul is making to this idea that you have not been destined to wrath as a Christian. You've actually been destined, Romans 8 tells us, to be conformed to the image of Christ. You have a destiny. So your destiny is not wrath. Wrath brings terror, right? We, if, if we were to go and we were to read Revelation right now, and you read about the, the, the trumpet, the bowl, right, the judgment, those judgments, that's terror, right? But we're not destined for wrath. We're destined for salvation in Christ. So that's a, just something to tuck in your back pocket there to kind of uh, complement what we're already talking about. But let's flip over to 1 John. 1 John is an interesting book. It's been years since we've gone through it. Um, it can be a bit confusing if you try to approach 1 John as a test of salvation. In other words, if you're reading chapter 3, and when he, sees, he has some hard things to say. Chapter 2 also, where he makes the point, he says, if you say you, know, you have no sin, then you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. Then he goes on to say that if we, uh, that if we say, or we, he makes the point, if we say we don't have sin, then we're a liar, and he says that if you sin, you're of the devil. You're like, that feels kind of rough, Right? So if you try to approach 1 John from a, from a test of faith, meaning do you, are you saved or not, it's impossible to reconcile unless you come out in a way where you're saying, I'm saved, I'm not saved, I'm saved, I'm not saved, based on whether I'm sinning in that moment or not. But John, 1 John, in the very beginning, he says, we are writing to you, in John 1, he says, we, 1 John 1, we are writing to you because our fellowship is with the Father. And we want you to have fellowship with the Father and us. The whole point of 1 John is this is how you experience fellowship, not how you experience salvation. So it helps us when we get to chapter 4, and there's, there's some application that John is giving about how we as Christians live. And this will you know, just tuck this away for our whole uh, teaching here, because it's, it's going to add context to everything that we're talking about. So he says in 1 John chapter 4, and verse 11, again, forgive me, it's, it's the middle of a thought, but uh, we're not going to take it out of context here. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And the way that the verb tenses are here is the idea that when we are in the midst of loving others, when that's happening actively in our life, then God's love is actively, uh, actively being fulfilled in our life in the moment. Does that make sense? Uh, it's important because otherwise you come to this place where you're like, God loves me, he doesn't love me, he loves me, he doesn't love me. And, and that's, not, that's not what he's saying. He, see, he goes on to say there, uh, he says, um, verse 13, he says, This is how we know that we live in him and he is in us. He has given us of his spirit. Now, remember, we just talked about that last week, right? That was just in our text last week in 2 Corinthians 5, that God has given us his spirit as a token. Literally, the word token there is a, is a first installment, as a down payment, as it were. It's the first evidence of being saved, that the Holy Spirit is given to you, right? So he goes on from there, and he says, verse 14, And we have seen and testify that, uh, that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. Again, John, you know, he's called John the Revelator. He's kind of the, he's like the mysterious guy. And then so some of his writing can seem a little bit like it's super heady. 
But really, he's just pointing out what Paul points out in Romans and other places, that a person who receives the gospel, right, who acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, which was a heresy then, just as it is now, where people deny that, the heresy is denying it. He says that anyone who acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. They have life through God. That God is in them through the Holy Spirit, and they are experiencing life through God, right? So we're into that. That's good. He goes on there, verse 16, he says, And we know and rely on the love that God has for us. Now, this is huge, right? Because he just said the way to life, the way to have God's life, is to acknowledge and to believe in Jesus, right? I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but to acknowledge and believe in who God is and what he did. Then he says here, and this is, this is profound. I don't know if you're an underliner or a highlighter or whatever, but this is, this is really good on some dark days. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. What do we rely on for life? The love of God. He could have written in there, and we know and rely on all the good things we do. We know and we rely on all the obedience that we have. We know, that we, we know and rely on all the times we've tied. We know and rely on all the time. But he doesn't say that. He says that we know and we rely on it. What's relying? Relying is, like if you say, I'm relying on someone, you're counting on that person to do something, right? So what are we counting on for life? Which is our context in John 1, right? We're counting on God's love in us. That's what we're relying on. We don't rely on our works. Works are good, and we'll get to that. But we don't rely on it for life. It says there, uh, after that, it says, God is love, and whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. So again, a similar context, right? We just got done talking about the Bema Seat judgment, that we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and now John talking about being saved, and now he's talking about our day of judgment, and he, he makes a point that in love, with love, that's how we have confidence. Not just like this airy-fairy idea or something like that, but that God is love, and whoever lives in love lives in God. Now, this is that word agape or agapeo, depending on the tense, and it's moral love of God, right? So it's not phileo, like familial love or love, fondness or something like that. It's not eros, it would be erotic love or story. You know, it's it's, it's, it's a, uh, agape love. And it's the idea in Greek of a moral love, a love that is withstanding. Think of it this way. It is a love that looks at every other human being on the planet and says, I don't validate what you do or, or everything you've done, but I want the best for you. That's what God's love is. So a person can look at a, uh, a child molester, right? We, we always call them the worst of the worst. Uh, Saddam Hussein, or just, just think of someone that in your mind is the most sinful person that you can think of. Hopefully it's yourself, but we'll, we'll just go with someone else for now, right? <laughs> to look at that person and to say, I, don't, I can't validate what you did. I don't condone it. I don't appreciate it. I don't like it. And there needs to be justice for it. But I hope the best for you. I hope you find Christ. I hope you get saved. And there's even times in our life where we say, I won't be around you. You've hurt me. You've hurt my family. You, you've done too much damage that I can't interact with you. But I can look at you. And I don't loathe you. I want the best for you. 
Okay, so that's, that's what agape love is. And so God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten son. The idea there is that God looked at humans, and he doesn't, he doesn't validate or appreciate, right, or condone everything that we do. But he looks at us and he says, I want the best for you, which, which we know is him, right? God is the best for us, to experience all that he has for us and, and, and receive salvation and all that. So in, this, in our first John back here, we know that God is love. That's who he is in his essence, that everything that he's done, said, or anything that has ever come from God has come from the essence or out of the foundation of that kind of love. Everything that's ever happened, everything in the New Testament, everything in the Old Testament, all these things have come from a place where he wants the best for human beings. He goes on from there and he says this, if a person is living in that, and again, verb tense-wise, that whoever is uh, in this moment experientially and walking in love. So if you're making the decision, like you're, you're deciding, I am going to live this way, right? Because that's not a one-time decision, is it? I don't think any of us just like got saved and then you're like, I just love everybody now, Right? And that's, that's why it's really important to look at verb tenses, especially in 1 John, because the, the, the point of 1 John is not if you're a Christian, you can't hate someone, because then none of us will be saved, right? The point of 1 John is that you cannot walk in hate, walk in a lack of love, and then say, I love God, and say, I'm familiar with the truth, and I'm walking in truth. That's the point of 1 John. So when he comes back here and he says, look, he says, if you're currently walking in love, then you're walking in God. And he, and he, and he qualifies it. And this is really fascinating, isn't it? Because he qualifies it in the verse, uh, 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 the end of verse 17. He says, in this world, we are like Jesus. And it kind of makes you go, what? What does that mean? Well, if we go all the way back to 1 John 15, or I mean, I'm sorry, if we go all the way back to John 15, what did Jesus tell his disciples in that whole talk about abiding? He said, if you obey my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. Right? Isn't that fascinating? So Jesus makes the point, if you uh, do what I say, you will abide in my love, just like I do what my Father says in heaven, and I abide in his love. Now, if you're like me or a lot of other people, you immediately take the inverse. And you want to go, well, does that mean if I don't obey him, he doesn't love me? Well, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Can you imagine if that's how moral love worked? That's how, like, bad dad love works. right? That's how, like, manipulative parental love works. If you prop me up as a parent and do what I say, then I will love you. If you don't, then you're a twerp and I hate you. Right? That's an unhealthy, bad love that nobody would endorse. But that's not what Jesus said. He says, if you obey my commandments, you abide in my love. What does that mean? Think of it this way. I remember when my daughter was about eight years old, and I think we told her she had to like, get off video games or something. I can't remember what it was. It was pretty life-shattering, but we, were pretty, you know, we, had just, we said, like, you've had enough iPad for the day or something like that. We're tyrants. I don't know what to tell you. And... Uh, and I remember she told me, she's like, that makes me want to run away from home. And as a good dad, I said, do you want me to pack your stuff? <laughs> I did say that. And then she was like, no. I was like, of course you don't. But the, the point was, so let's say it, she, she does leave, right? Let's say she, the whole thing, she gets a stick. It's got a little knapsack on the back, you know. <laughs> Walking off the driveway, you know, rage in her eyes. I'll do way better out here, dad. Right? You know, I'm sure you will. 
right? So if she leaves my home, the tragic part is I won't love her any less, right? She doesn't become any less than Aiken. She doesn't, her, her genetics don't change, right? Because she's been, she's been born to us. She's our daughter. And we would love her to the end of the age, right? Regardless of what she ever decided to do. We're gonna, we're, we care for her. We love her, right? But what happened would be she would leave. And then when it's dinner time, is she going to get to eat with us? No, she's not. Because we're withholding it? No, because she's not there to experience it, right? When it's bedtime, she's out under a bush somewhere with her little knapsack, right? Probably crying because now she's homesick and she's lost and she's cold. Is that something that we implicitly put upon her? You can make the argument, yes, because you didn't grab her and obviously we would not let her run away. But the point is this. If she leaves my home, then she is out of my love, isn't she? I still love her but she's not experiencing everything that my love can provide her, right? So Jesus is not making the case, if you disobey God, he doesn't love you anymore. That's just bad theology. He's making the case that if you obey what I have to say, because everything that Jesus says is good, right? Everything he's ever told any person ever to do was good. Even what we might look at as atrocities and difficulties of the Old Testament. When God goes out and he tells Israel, you need to wipe out these people groups, it was to preserve Christ. It was to preserve his lineage. It was to to bring judgment upon the earth. And it's, it's, you know, as a side note, it's it's crazy, isn't it? Because when we see atrocities, we go, God, why don't you do something? And then when we see him do something, we go, God, how could you do that? It's pretty wild how people like to look at the Old Testament. Everything God has ever said to do is good. And everything Jesus has ever said and everything he's ever done is good. And so when he tells us to do something, he might say, you need to get rid of this out of your life, or you need to bring this into your life. When we say, no, I'm not going to do that, it's not that he goes, oh, yeah, well, then forget you. I knew you were a loser anyway. Here's your little knapsack and stick, you know, have, bye. No, it's that we remove, he says, this is good, and this is what I have for you, and you say no, what are you left with? You're left with what you have for you, which is a sad sack, isn't it? There is not a lot of good in there. So he says, just like Jesus walked, he obeyed his father because everything his father ever said was good. He says, we're like Jesus in this world. That's the life that we're called to. We're called to say yes to him because everything he has for us is life. He goes on for there and he says that this is how love is made complete. This is how love completes and fulfills everything that God wants for us. This is the core issue. Do you love him and do you love others? And, And do I? This isn't accusatory. It's a, it's a question we have to ask ourselves. Is this how we walk? Because he says if we walk in this way, we have confidence in the day of judgment. Think about that. To be able to look forward and to say, I look forward to Jesus judging my life. I look forward to standing before him. And he says the way that this happens is you walk in his love. You experience it. You commune with him. You walk as the bride of Christ. You walk as uh, father and son. You walk as co-heir. All these different things. He says that's how this confidence and this incredible dynamic can work out in our lives when we walk in love. He says, he goes on from there and he says, there is no fear in love. So this is the same word. This is phobon. So he's speaking here of the idea of terror. Right? 
There's no terror. There's no fear in love. When you have a, a loving relationship, whether it's with God or with a friend or a spouse or whoever, a child, when you have a loving relationship, a familial relationship, there's no fear there. And he says, this is the kind of love that God has and wants to perfect in us, that we walk with him and there's no fear in the sense of terror or doubt or what if God will destroy me or something. Again, if you're saying to yourself, well, he's the Lord. No, I'm in. He's the Lord. And he has designed salvation to work in a way that all of our sin was placed on Jesus Christ, right? The sin of the world. In fact, in the end of 2 Corinthians 5, what did he say? He says, he that knew no sin, Christ did not intrinsically know sin experientially for himself. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So the holy God became so familiar with all sin that the Bible says, metaphorically, it's like he became it. It was all taken upon himself, right? Another place that says that he took the ordinances written against us and he nailed them to his cross. That's all ordinances for all time, right? You, can't, you, you get really weird if you try to say, well, yeah, when you got saved from the day you got saved back, then your sins were forgiven. But then, then it's all about short accounts until then. That doesn't even work. If you try to take that approach that, that all sin wasn't taken care of of Christ, you literally bounce in and out of salvation. How many sins does it take to go to hell? Yeah. So do you really go like, I'm on my way to hell? Oh, forgive me, Father. Oh, heaven bound. That person bugs me. Oh, hell it is. No. Everything was taken care of in Christ, right? All sin was forgiven. We're righteous in Christ. But right now, what we have is an opportunity to walk in love, to walk without fear because of what Jesus did. And now we have the Holy Spirit in us, right? That's what he said as a token. And we know from Romans chapter 5, what's the Holy Spirit doing? Well, a lot. But he's bearing fruit in us, and he's bearing the fruit of love. We know from Romans 5 that he's shedding abroad the love of God in our heart when we go through trials. So we have an active advocate with Jesus, our Lord Jesus, who is before the Father, claiming our righteousness. Even when Satan accuses us, we have an active advocate in the Spirit who's making groanings. Remember last week in Romans chapter 8, he's making groanings for us. When we don't know what to pray, we don't know what's going on. You ever have those days where you're just like, I don't even know what to say, God. I'm hosed. I got nothing. I got no claim. I got nothing. It's only the blood of Jesus. The Spirit's right there making intercession. Going, I don't know how it works, but in my mind, it's like, yeah, okay, just ignore that guy. Here's what he needs. <laughs> I don't know if it works that way. Yes, that's nice, James, but here's what he really needs. You know? And I feel like if the Holy Spirit's praying for us, I think those prayers are going to answer. God's going to work. God's going to move, right? He's going to do great things for us. So we can walk on Jesus, and we can actually have no fear and, and no terror. And he says, because fear, phobos, has to do with punishment. Do, do you see the equation there? We don't fear punishment. Because our judgment is not punishment. It's a removing of the mortal. It will suck. I'm not saying it'll be pleasant. Because to, to develop selfishness in some form in my heart, it'll be so painful 
And think about how painful it is to deal with right now, right? When the Lord reveals something and you have to let go, you have to die to yourself. I cannot imagine the burning it will be to have that torn out of my soul so my soul can go to heaven. I don't think it'll be pleasant, but I think we'll be thankful. And as a completely just James Aiken theory that you can throw right in the trash, I think that's why you read in Revelation that there's, there's no more tears there. There's no more pain, no more death. But it also says that in heaven, Jesus wipes away every tear. It's just a, just a theory you can throw in the trash. Because I think as we, as we have those things that we cultivated, if we did in our souls that were selfish, and, and, and by faithfulness, God tears mortality away from our immortal soul, they'll be there to, to wipe the tears away and say, come on in. Because that's the guarantee, right? That we'll be conformed to the image of his son. No more fears. And then verse, uh, the end of the verse there, he says, the one who fears is not made perfect in love. Again, the idea there with the, the verb tenses is the one who is currently walking in a mode of fear. That person is not walking as mature in love. Does that make sense? So we don't relate to God with terror. So that was a giant explanation. Just to say, that's how we know what he's talking about here back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I appreciate the, what was it, 71 or 72 scholars that, that uh, King James put together in 1611 to uh, make the translation. Um, unfortunately, I don't think that that's the accurate translation to say it's the terror of the Lord. Because as we've just viewed, and there's many more verses to look at, you and I don't have to have terror of the Lord because that terror was taken away in Christ. But we do reverence the Lord, right? So since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. So this is important. He doesn't say because we have to, because we should, because it's the right thing to do. Now those things may enter into our lives and those can be healthy motivators at times. But the prime motivator of every Christian is this, knowing who God is, having a reverence and a love, a fear of the Lord, and saying, I don't want to let him down. He's done so much for me. He's so good to me. He goes, because Paul says, it's just an autobiographical statement. He's just saying it about himself. Remember, when he says we, we probably go, oh, me. No, it's not us. We can appropriate this. But he's specifically writing to the Corinthians about his ministry with Paul and Silas. I mean, with with, uh, Timothy and Silas, right? So that's who the we is there. Now, we can appropriate that for ourselves, surely. But he's just making a statement saying, look, this is why we do it. Because we know who he is. And he's going to elaborate on that, right? Because he goes from there. And he says, we're not trying to persuade you, right? Or I'm sorry, what, is, what, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. And again, he's, he's, he's reiterating that who they are in Christ and what they're trying to do, he says, look, it's plain to God. Like, our, our conscience is clear. He knows what we're trying to do. He knows who we are. And then he says, I hope that it is also plain to your conscience. In other words, your inner self. On the inside, right? I hope that you guys on the inside will be honest and acknowledge about who we are. Remember, he started the church. He was there for 18 months. He's visited multiple times. He's written multiple letters. Uh, in chapter 3, he says, remember he says that you're our letter? He, he, he asked the question, do we have to commend ourselves to you again? Do, you, do we have to show that we're legitimate to you again? And he says, don't you know that you are our letter? That, that your church is the legitimacy of our uh, uh, our ministry, that you can look around and see the fruit that God has done there, and that is our ministry, Paul would say. 
He's go, and then from there in verse 12, he says, We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. So this may seem a little contradictory because he says we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us. And you're like, isn't that kind of the same thing? Yes and no. <clears throat> the point is this. He's saying we're not trying to revalidate ourselves to you because he had just done that in chapter 3. What he's saying is it's, it's, about the, not, it's not about the messengers, it's about the message. Because who the messenger is affects the message, doesn't it? Go back to the example of being rude. If you are a rude person or a selfish person, and like let's say you come into work every day and just, you know, everything is bad. The weather's bad, politics are bad, the family's bad, your show is bad on TV, everything's just bad. But I trust Jesus. Is that going to have a lot of effect? Is that somebody you'd want to listen to? If someone was like, everything in this world is terrible and I just, I hate it. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. By the way, Jesus loves you and would you like to come to my church? And you'd be like, no, I don't want to go to your church. Are they like you? <laughs> right? The messenger always affects the message. They always will. So Paul's not saying, he's, he's saying, I'm not just trying to validate myself again. He says, what I want you to do is to be able to have pride in us. Not pride in the sense it means to, to boast in or to exalt in. The idea isn't that they're going to be like, you know, Paul is so much better than Jesus. No, the idea is that they look at Paul in that ministry and they boast about it. This, God's using this guy. God's done great things through this guy. And he says, the reason I want you to be able to boast in us or have pride in us is because I want you to be able to have an answer to a certain group of people. He says, I want you to be able to answer the group of people that's at your church, that's there in Corinth, that is focusing on and glorying and being prideful about what is seen. Remember, they attacked Paul, right? They, in, I think it's chapter 6 where they say uh, his countenance, that he, he's weak in stature. They basically say when he, he, whenever he talks, he's a very weak speaker, but he writes really strong letters. And that's what they say about Paul. So they attack his outside. They attack what he looks like on the outside and, and some of his outward habits or something like that. So evidently, I don't know, maybe he wasn't a good speaker, but he's an incredible letter writer. I guess that worked out for us. But, you know, at the end of the day, he says, I want you guys not just to find me legitimate, but to find me legitimate so that you can understand the legitimacy of the message. So that you can take what we've been teaching and you can give an answer to all those people that are telling you, hey, look at me, you know, I keep the Sabbath. Hey, look at me, I keep the, the dietary laws. Look at me, I'm a Gnostic. I have secret knowledge and all matter is bad, right? All these different heresies that are going on in the time. And what is it? What is matter? What is the Sabbath? What are all those things? Things that can be seen. Which, how many times in chapter 3, he said, these are temporal things. Chapter 4, these are transitory things, right? Over and over and over again. So he's saying, I want you to walk and to understand what we're doing so that you can look at people that are always trying to change the outside, I'll make sure you stop smoking and make sure you don't go to McDonald's too much and make sure you do. It's like you need to know Christ and let the love of Christ constrain you. Let the love of Christ lead you because that's where he's going. He goes on there in chapter 5 and he says this. Um, verse 13, he says, If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. So now he makes a comparison. And apparently people were saying that he was out of his mind. 
This is actually the same phraseology in Greek as when they said of Jesus, you're out of your mind. So he, he says, look, if, when people say we're out of our mind, you have to know, and it's, 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 it's debatable what he's talking about. Is he talking about his lifestyle? Because that was wild, right? In chapter 11, I think it's 11, he's going to go through, and <clears throat> what's he going to talk about? He's been beaten so many times he can't remember. He's been shipwrecked multiple times, right? He's been accosted by uh, brethren, He's been accosted by thieves, right? All these different things that have happened in his life. So they may be looking at that and say, you're crazy. That doesn't really seem to fit the, uh, the context, though. It seems more likely that what they're doing is they're looking at his, his doctrine, and they're saying, you're out of your mind. Do you remember when Paul goes back to Jerusalem in Acts? What does James say to Paul? He says, hey, I need you to shave your head, and I need you to shave Timmy's head and pay for it. And I need you to give a sacrifice at the temple because all the, the, the Jewish Christians are pretty chapped right now because they say, you say, to not follow the Mosaic law, which Paul did, right? So he goes to Jerusalem, and James is, is literally trying to say, like, hey, uh, you've caused a lot of stir because you're saying that you don't have to follow the law anymore, so we need you to go and kind of follow the law to calm down all the Christians that are here in Jerusalem. It's pretty wild, right? Because for most of us, when we think of the first century church, our eyes roll back in our head and we're like, when everything was perfect. And you're just like, no. Nah. The first century church was just as broken as the you know, 21st century church because there's people there. And so whenever there's people, you're going to have that issue. All that to say is, is we're looking at, you know, Paul, uh, is he, is, they, they may have looked at those things and said, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. How can you teach this? It was, it was just as re- revolutionary then as it is now. Uh, about how forgiveness works and so forth. So he says, hey, if we're out of our mind, it's for the Lord. We're doing the things that we're doing that people are insulting for the Lord. But then he says, but if we're in our minds, in other words, if we're acting rationally and the things that we're doing and we're saying, he says, it's all for you. We're doing this for you. If it's the abuse that he endured, he says, I, I endure this abuse for you. If it's the controversial, remember, remember, he writes in Romans and he calls it scandal, the scandal of the cross. Right? It's a, the cross was scandalous. Why? Because it was unlimited forgiveness. And that's a scandalous idea. We don't really like that idea. But that's what it meant for human beings. So if, uh, from there he says, hey, if these things, they're for you. Then he goes on to verse 14. He says, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all, uh, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and for them and, and was raised again. So he makes another statement about himself and, and, and really his ministry that, that we want to appropriate. He says, Christ's love compels us. That's very similar to the first question we asked. What compels you? And it compels, the idea of, of being compelled is almost like, forces you to do something. Does that make sense? Like if you compel someone, it's more aggressive than like, hey, this is an idea. The idea is that you're pushing someone to do something. And so he says here, what compels us is Christ's love. And this is really challenging. When we post on social media, is it compelled by Christ's love? Could we go back over all of our social media posts and say, I would just be moved by the love of God to write this. Probably not, if you're like every other human on the planet. Every word that we've ever spoken to someone, even when we were angry, 
even when there was conflict, could we say, you know what? The love of Christ compelled me to say that. Probably not. And again, I'm not just throwing these things out here to be like some sort of jerk, like, you guys are bad people. That's not the deal at all. The deal is that there are places in our lives where we have to be honest, because only you can know. Well, I mean, I guess if you say outrageous mean stuff, we can all know. But in general, only you can know if you're being compelled by the love of Christ. And we have a lot of, I guess, verses that kind of make bumpers for that. Can help, like, for example, in James, you know, the wrath of man cannot produce the purposes of God. They can't. How many of us have tried to force our children to conform to something or force someone around us? Oh, you don't believe that? I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to filibuster you until you do, right? Like, it's not healthy. It's not good. So we're there to, we're there to, to be compelled by God's love. So how does that work? Well, we don't have time, but in Ephesians chapter 4, or chapter 2, I should say, we're told that we're saved by grace through faith, Right? So it's not faith that saves us. This is really important. It's not faith that saves you. Because we have tiny, tiny faith right when we get saved. And faith is interesting because it, it grows and shrinks sometimes. We don't want it to shrink, but you know something terrible occurs in our life, and all of a sudden faith kind of goes, ooh. It doesn't have to, all right? But it, it can, and a lot of times it does. And what do we do? We kind of battle back with the little faith that we do have. And we say, okay, this is how I feel. I don't live by sight. I'm going to live by faith. This is what the scripture says. I don't feel like I want the scripture to say that. I want to be angry. I want to be hurt. I want to be, you know, be able to voice my victimization. I want to do all these things. And so our faith, we kind of get in this battle, right? And then if faith wins out, we come to a place where we say, you know what, Lord? You can do what you will in my life, but please work this out for good because I don't see how that can happen, right? That's, that's the beginning of our walks. So faith, it, goes, it gets bigger and smaller. It is what it is. But we're not saved by faith. We're saved by grace. The power and the force that saved us was God's grace, his unmerited favor to humans. And it came through what Jesus did on the cross. So what did faith do? Faith just, I heard it and I said, I want that. So my faith didn't save me. My faith brought me to the force that did save me, to the power at the cross. And this is really important because there's whole doctrines today that are based around faith, right? If you have enough faith, you don't get sick, you stay rich, you know, all these different things. And that's really propagated. And even sometimes we, if, if like, even for us that don't hold those doctrines, we can come to places in our life where we're like, oh, my colds lasted too long. What, you know, what did I do wrong? Like, what, what? And it's like, ah, oh, that's not how God works. You have to be careful with that. Be very careful with that. So we, 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 when we look at this, and we're, we're walking by uh, faith, and we're not, we're not walking by sight, we're, we're, we're still trusting in God's grace. He goes on from there, and he says in verse 9, it's not of works lest any man should boast. If there is any work at all in salvation, we would claim it. We would boast in it. If salvation was believe in God and give him a thumbs up, we'd be like, I held my thumb up for like 20 hours that's how saved I am. Well, you were like 19 hours? Yeah, I hope that's enough. That's what we would do. If it was baptism, we'd be like, I stayed down for 10 minutes. That's how much I identify with Christ's death. How much did you? Oh, like two seconds? Yeeks, that's not a lot of identification with death. Are you sure you're saved? That's what we would do. You know, some denominations say it's in speaking in tongues. And you're like, okay, how, why? How long do you have to speak in tongues? Is one word okay? 
Does it need to be 20? It's just these weird things that we try to add to it. It's always right. So he says, it's not of works, because lest we should boast. And then he says this. He saved us for good works. We are his workmanship, it says. We are his workmanship, and he saved us for good works that he has foreordained. That's chapter, uh, verse 10, 210. So we are his workmanship. The workmanship, the idea there is his poema, his artistry, his, his you know, obviously it sounds like poem and these ideas, that God's reaping this incredible thing in our lives. And so we've been saved to do good works. But they're good works, it says, that he has foreordained for us. In other words, getting all the way back to our introduction, we don't have to do everything, right? The love of Christ constraining or compelling me does not mean I have to do everything I could ever possibly do for God. You would die. We just have to estimate and we pray through it, but not in torment, right? Not in terror because terror has punishment. We're not in terror over punishment about finding the will of God. How many of us have felt so like, oh no, what's God's will? Oh, like, like he's like this really bad dad and he just kind of sits back and he's quiet and like, you better do my will. And you're like, what do you want me to do? And he's like, meh. You better figure it out. That, you ever thought about God that way? You're seeking him for something and it's just like, oh, you gotta tell me, you gotta tell me. And like, there's this dread. If I don't figure it out, then he'll punish me for it? That's not a real, he said, he goes, that person, when we walk that way, we're not walking perfected in love. In other words, love is not completed in us. Our relationship and understanding of who God is is not come to flourishion. We're walking in terror, and that brings punishment. So when we're talking about being compelled by the love of God, it's real simple. It's very simple. We say, we get up in the morning or at night or whenever your time is, and you say, hey, well, Lord, this is my plan today. Is this what you want? If you want something else, will you just tell me? You know, God told us, he says, I made the mouth. Can I not speak? We don't have to live in torment going, oh God, what if I go through my day and God said I wanted you to do this and I didn't do it. If he said he wanted you to do something, you'll know. He's not like some weird passive friend that's like, you know, kind of hints at something and then you don't do it and they're like, ah. Right, these are all of our experiences. And we try to put those on God, but that's not who he is. He's the loving, kind, Lord of glory that's speaking to his people, foreordained good works for us to walk in, and that's all we need to concern ourselves with. We don't have to concern ourselves with anything except what God has told us to do. Now, some things are given, right? You don't wake up in the morning and say, God, should I love people today? Because I'm feeling kind of Haiti, and I just kind of want to roll with that, right? <laughs> no, you, you don't have to pray. You don't have to think about that. You, you already know. When I get up this morning, God's called me to seek him and to love others. I already know that. But in the details, should I go to Subway? Should I eat at home? The Lord lead you in that, right? Use wisdom for those things. And, and, but he's for you, and he's got great things for you. So the love of Christ, let's let it compel us. Let's, let it, let's be honest. Let's be honest with ourselves. It's just between you and God. Let's be honest when it's not his love. And then not try to pretend like it is so that we can kind of gratify the flesh. We don't want to do that. We don't want to stand before him having been selfish people and have to have that removed from us. And then lastly, this, this estimation. He died for all, and we were all, that means we were all dead. He had to redeem every one of us. And he says, and, um, the, the, so, so that those who, have, who live should no longer live for themselves, right? We don't want to live for ourselves. It's so attractive to the flesh, right? The flesh is like, oh, living for myself, it's the best. It's just so great. But you know, when you live for yourself, 
in the middle of it, it does feel good, right? Because you're telling people whatever you want to tell them, and you're smoking what you want to smoke, and you're drinking whatever you want to drink, and you're going where you want to go, and you're, you know, whatever, sexing whatever you want to sex, and you're just living it up, man, right? feels great. But then afterwards, what happens? It's death, man. It's emptiness. It's dust and ashes, right? That's what, that's what this life holds outside of Christ. So I encourage you, if you feel stuck in your sin, right? If you're here today, you just feel like, dude, I don't even know how to deal with myself. We'd love to help you. We'd love to pray with you. Feel free to come up, you know, after service, and we'll pray with you. And, uh, you know, there's, there's hope for every one of us in this room. Or if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, I encourage you, invite him in. Invite him. Lord, I need that forgiveness. Lord, I don't know what I need. Will you show me? Right? He's the Lord of glory. He's got great things for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and your great kindness to us. And Lord, we praise you. You've been so patient with us and kind to us, and we're thankful for that. Lord, we pray that uh, you would continue to lead us and guide us, convict us, Lord, where we're living for self. And we pray that you'd be exalted in our heart and our lives around to people around us. So thanks for being so kind to us. We appreciate it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you guys.